Good morning, Sanctus Church. We're so glad that you're joining us, whether you're here at the Ajax location or up in Port Perry or Bowmanville, or for the first time, let's welcome them to the Pickering site today. We're so excited. Amazing. Congratulations. Welcome to week six in our fall series out of the book of Galatians. If you've got a Bible here today, we'd love you physically or virtually to turn to it, or the scriptures will be on the screen at all sites. We've been finding out week in and week out that this was written 16 to 20 years after the Jesus event, his death and real resurrection. A group of non-Jews had converted and become followers of Jesus, but now they're being tempted to believe in a false gospel. These false teachers were called Judaizers, and one person summarized what they were teaching this way. Not all Jewish people are Christian, but now all Christians must become Jewish. And the battle lines had been drawn because Paul had been teaching something different. The one who founded the churches, he was teaching Jesus plus nothing is everything. Jesus' work alone, Jesus' grace alone, in faith alone. And the false teachers were actually teaching all the right things about Jesus. He's the Messiah, the fulfillment of the Jewish faith, the Son of God, the second person in the Trinity, as we would say it today. And yet they were going, ah, but God will not love you, will not accept you, unless also you do all these rituals. So as we've been walking through Galatians, here's the question. Was the Christian moment and momentum going to become a Jewish thing only, or was it going to be a global thing that touched the whole world? So last week, we were in Galatians 3 at the beginning, and Paul, remember, a world-class rabbi himself, said, I've had enough. Let's go to the foundation of this whole thing. These false teachers keep teaching all the right things about Jesus, but then saying to all you non-Jews, well, actually, you have to accept Jesus plus becoming Jewish. Let's go to the very first Jew. Let's go to Abraham and see what happened with him. And he says simply in Galatians 3, 6, these words, consider Abraham. Oh, he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now this was like a bombshell that overcame all of what the false teachers had been saying. If you know the story, maybe you don't, the story of Abraham begins all the way back in the beginning in Genesis. His original name was Abram. He was not a follower of God. His father probably was a moon worshiper. He was a polytheist, worshiped many gods, and yet God, in his mercy, chose to meet him. Aren't you glad God keeps doing that? Genesis 12, 2, I will make you into a great nation, he said. I'm going to bless you. I'll make your name great. You're going to become a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you. And all people, all ethnicities, all people groups on the earth will be blessed through you. This, by the way, is the foundation of the Jewish faith today. God meets Abram, a moon worshiper, and shows him there's only one God. He is that God. And oh, here's the brilliant thing. Abram encounters God at 75 years old. Let me just say this. It is never too late to meet the true living God. It's never too late to encounter your creator. Abram at 75 years old encounters him. But never forget, God starts it, God destines it, God decrees it, God appoints it, and God settles before him that Abram and his family would be his people, and this people would bless not just him, but all the world. Well, a problem happens. I mean, Abram meets God at 75, and he gets older and older, and so does his wife, and not much happens. So he goes to God and says, hey, we got a problem here. Supposedly, you're giving me a family, and through this family, everyone's going to be blessed, but, you know, we're a little past expiry date here, and I got no kids. 
So Abram goes to God and boldly says in Genesis 15:3, you have given me no children. So a servant in my own household is going to be my heir. And God spoke back. This man's not going to be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. And he took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them all. So shall your offspring be. Here it is, verse 6. And Abram believed God, and it was credited to him as what? Righteousness. Abraham was called righteous, legally, relationally okay with God, in relationship with God. And remember, this happens before any Jewish ritual exists. The very first Jewish person that ever exists, Abram, met God because God chose to choose him. He wasn't looking for God. Second of all, Abram was declared righteous 10 years before the circumcision decision was made by God as a symbol of Judaism. And actually, Abram was declared righteous 400 plus years before Moses even got the Ten Commandments. So Paul is basically saying, look, he's already righteous. He's already in good standing with God. And why? Because he's good? Because he's dutiful? Because he's deeply religious? No, he had faith. Now what does faith mean? He had faith in faith, faith, no, no. He had trust in God and what God said would be true, so he believed God. And God declared him righteous. It was a new legal relational status over God. And Paul's coming along to these false teachers and saying, so you're saying I have to trust in Jesus, have faith in him, and do all this other Jewish stuff, and then God likes me? Hold on, hold on, hold on. I thought the original Jew was just made right with God by faith. This is what he'd write in Romans 4, 1 later. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, remember Paul's Jewish, discovered in this matter? If in fact Abraham was justified, made right with God by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. And what does the Old Testament say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Well, then the next question Paul begins to ask, and his critics are going to throw at him immediately, and actually what a lot of us would probably think about but not articulate it this way is this. Well, then what about the law? I mean, at the end of the day, if faith is all that matters, why in the world would God give the law in the first place? I mean, did he have a bad day? Did God change his mind? Did he not agree with himself? And then all these other questions like, well, Do I need to obey the law now I'm in Jesus? And do I even need to live a holy life? And now I'm a friend of God through Jesus and have eternal life. Can I live like hell even though I'm going to heaven because I got fire insurance? Well, Paul says, whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's start talking about what the law does and actually what it doesn't. Galatians 3.15, here's where we pick up. Uh, Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant or agreement that has been duly established, so it is within this case. He says, just look around at your life. We all know this. When you sign a contract, when you have something legally binding, you just can't change it. You can't walk and say, I don't want that anymore. It is. You cannot revoke or alter or ignore or add or take away from what's agreed upon. So it's binding. And Paul says this, and God's promise to Abraham is binding. His promise still stands. So he says, the promises, verse 16, spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Uh, The Old Testament does not say seeds. Like many people, it says, and to your seed, meaning one person, Christ. Oh, Paul says, oh, let's just have a time out. 
Let's get, let, let's get this all together. And this is going to matter whether you're not a Christian here today or you're a seeker or you're a skeptic or you're a brand new Christian or you've believed for 45 years. He says, you just got to catch this. The only person that gets all the benefits and all the blessings that God promised to Abraham in fulfillment is one person. Oh, it's Jesus. That's why later Paul would write this in 2 Corinthians 1.20. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Jesus. And through him the amen is spoken to us to the glory of God. So ready? Here's the catch. To get the blessings of Abraham, you have to be in Jesus. If you're not in Jesus, you don't get the blessings of Abraham. Because Jesus is the only one who determines who becomes a fellow heir. He decides who gets the inheritance and who doesn't. And God doesn't lie. And so the promise to Abraham is found in Jesus and it stands. And we all go, okay, you still didn't answer my question. (laughs) I mean, what about the law? What's the purpose of the law? Why did God give the Ten Commandments? I'm still confused. Paul says, ah, verse 17. What I mean is this. The law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depended on the law, then it no longer depends on the, what? Promise. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a what? Promise. Ready? Here's what Paul's saying. The promise cannot change and the promise will not change because God does not change because God is not a liar. It cannot be altered. So listen, he says, if the law through Moses, the Ten Commandments, plus all the other laws you read about, like in Leviticus, could save you, could earn you enough to pay off the massive mortgage we all have with God, which is unpayable, then God would have been declaring this. You can save yourself by your own deeds. See, this is all about two things. Is Christian faith about promise or performance? Tim Keller, the great pastor, Presbyterian pastor in New York, articulated it like this. God would have given out of his blessing on the basis of of performance and not promise. If I give you something because of what I have promised, it is not because of your performance. If I give you something because of what you've done, it's not because of a promise. For a promise to have a result, it needs only to be believed. But for a law to have a result, it has to be what? Obeyed. So he says, let me give you an example. My Uncle Jack wants to meet you. Congratulations. And he wants to give you $10 million. The only way that you probably would fail to receive the $10 million is to fail to believe the claim. Oh, please, you don't have an Uncle Uncle Jack. He doesn't want to give me $10 million. You laugh and you go home, rather going to see if there is an Uncle Jack and actually you never get the money. But if on the other hand I come to you and say, ah, listen, my Uncle Jack is willing to leave you his inheritance of $10 million, but you have to go live with him and take care of him in his old age, then you'd have to fulfill the requirement to get the money. So we're back to this. Is this all about performance or promise? And Paul says, hey, the law was not given to change the promise, to replace the promise, to remove the promise, because the promise is given. So we're still stuck going, well, what's the role of the law? Paul says, it's got a different purpose. He says, if you want to understand why God actually gave Moses the law, and gave, by the way, not just the Jews, the world the law, 
Here's why. Verse 19. Why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions. Until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. So why was the law given? To show us our sin. When you see the Ten Commandments, you see the very character of God. God didn't just wake up and go, mm, I don't really like murder today. No, no. He hates murder because he's a life-giving God. He doesn't go, adultery, mm, no, no, no. He's a covenant-keeping God. See, the law doesn't just reveal what God does not like. It reveals who he is. The Ten Commandments demonstrates to the human race the perfection, the separateness, and the withoutness of sin that God has. So when you see God in all of his perfection, our sin becomes clear what? Real quick. You will never know you need a savior if you think you're okay. The Ten Commandments show us how much sin we're in, how in trouble we're in, and that there's no person on earth that's okay with God. Doesn't matter how Jewish you are or non-Jewish you are, religious or unreligious, secular or spiritual, every single one of us is in big, big trouble. This is why later Paul would write this in Romans 7, 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would have not known what sin was if it had not been for the law. One person illustrated it this way. Maybe this will help us. Not long ago, People did not find out about a cancer until it was too late. The symptoms would appear, the bad news from the doctor. Then someone invented something called an MRI, this machine that quickly and could and accurately probes patients' flesh and yields detailed images of their body. A trained eye then can examine the image, locate cancerous tumors long before necessarily the patient presents symptoms. Now, if the MRI leads to the di diagnosis of cancer, the patient would be foolish to turn around and say, ah, it's the MRI's fault that I have cancer. If anything, the person might be thankful that the problem might have been discovered soon enough to be treated. Paul says these very un-Canadian, very biblical words. I did not know I was dying from the disease called sin until the law revealed my terminal condition and the law showed me not only am I in a terminal condition, I actually love my disease, and I'm going to do anything to keep it. I am living like a dead man. The law points out my problem. I'm living under a death sentence. But he keeps writing, and he says, it's not just that. He says, for I would have not known what covenant really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, oh, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. You say, well, John, I don't get that. That's really wordy. I know. I, I love what Chuck Swindoll, that old uh, Texan pastor, once wrote. He said, years ago, one of the very first high-rise ho hotels to open in Galveston, Texas, sat directly on the Gulf. It was so close to the water, in fact, that the owners worried that people would start dropping their fishing lines into the water from their balconies. High winds, large lead sinkers, and the first story, which had a glassed window restaurant, was a bad combination. So the management came up with a brilliant idea. In every single room, they placed a large sign that said, absolutely no fishing from the balcony. You know exactly what happened. What happened next? You guessed it. Well, the fishing rods came out, and guests on the first story dined regularly to the smacking of lead weights hitting the plate glass window and cracking them. Well, the management had a decision to make. How could they deal with this ongoing sin problem? They removed the sign, and it stopped immediately. Right when you see the law, what do we want to do? I want to do that. 
I want to do that. So not only does the law reveal our condition, and not only does the law show us who God is, the law also points out we like to trespass and go to places we're not allowed to go. Don't touch the cookie in the cookie jar. Let's go. Right? We know this in us. So here's the question then. Is the law a bad thing? No. The law is such an incredible gift. Aren't you glad that God sent the law so we'd know we're in trouble so we could get help? See, this is incredibly important that we reconnect this. So imagine if I went out today and I bought a brand new John Deere lawnmower. You know the ones you sit on? I don't have enough land to own that, but that thing. And I spent all the money with all the bells and whistles, which I don't know. Some of you in Port Perry know. I don't. God bless you in the north. Anyway... So I sit on that, and you're like, oh my goodness, John, I just, wow, that's such an amazing lawnmower. I'm like, yeah, I just can't wait to cut my grass. It's just such an epic, profound moment. And then in February, I say, I'm so excited to use my John Deere lawnmower. You're like, what are you talking about? Oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to deal with the snow with my lawnmower. You're like, you're such an idiot. That's a lawnmower, not a snowblower. Oh, no, no. I spent so much money, and look how beautiful it is, and I could sit on it, and I can get my coat on, and I'm going to deal with snow. You're like, honestly, John, like, get some help. I'm like, no, watch me do it. You're like, yeah, watch you do it. The lawnmower isn't wrong. The lawnmower isn't bad. But when I start using the lawnmower for the wrong thing, it becomes bad. And this is Paul's point. The law is not bad in itself at all. But when you try to use the law to save yourself and to prove yourself to God, you've taken it out of its God-given design and you're using it for a wrong thing and then it becomes wrong itself. Does that make sense? So he says, look, verse 19. The law was given through angels, entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies there's more than one party, but God's one. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. You want to offend every single religious person on earth? Read that verse. You will never encounter God. You will never find eternal life. You will never have peace in this life, the forgiveness of sins, or eternal life by what you do religiously. It's never going to save you. The gap is too big. And remember who's writing this. This is Paul, one of the best products of Judaism in his time. And if you read the oral law of the Jews in this time, you understand how offensive he's being. Let me just read you two famed quotes. Lots of Torah, lots of life. Here's another one. If a Jew has gotten the teachings of the Torah, he has got himself eternal life. And Paul's like, oh no, you haven't. The law is to show you you need a savior. The law does not give you life. It's not the law's fault, by the way, we can't keep it. It's not God's fault that we keep breaking his law. We're sinful. We walked away. It's our fallen nature that's the problem. It's not God's problem. It's not the law's problem. It's our problem. But it was never God's point to give the law to save us. And Paul says, hey, you Galatian Christians who have just met Jesus and you're growing your faith, don't listen to these false teachers who say the right things about Jesus but the wrong things about this because they're making you go backwards. The law never can save you. You're actually already saved. John Stott, the great and famed Anglican preacher of the last hundred years in London, articulated this the best. After God gave the promise to Abraham, he gave the law to Moses. Why? He had to make things worse before he could make them better. The law exposes sin. It provokes sin. Oh, and it condemns sin. The purpose of the law is to lift the lid 
off people's respectability. Let me put it another way. The role of the law is to show us that really nice Canadians aren't as nice as they think. To disclose what we all actually are underneath. Sinful, rebellious, guilty, under the judgment of God and helpless to save ourselves. And the law must be still allowed to do its God-given duty. One of the greatest faults of the contemporary church is to soft-pedal sin and judgment. We must never bypass the law and come straight to the gospel. To do so is actually to contradict the plan of God in biblical history. No person has ever appreciated the gospel until the law has revealed who they are to themselves. I love this quote. It is only against the inky blackness of a great dark night sky that stars begin to appear. It's only against the dark background of sin and judgment that the gospel of Jesus shines like the stars. Paul says, listen, let me help you work this out. He says, let me give you just, again, two, day, two examples from everyday life. A jailer, a jail guard, and a tutor. He says this in verse 22. The scripture has locked everything under the control of sin so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in the custody of the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. He says, look, you know, the law when it was given was like a jailer. And it actually put us in jail to stop us from doing all the things we weren't supposed to do. It was trying to keep us from doing the bad stuff. But we still wanted to break out of the jail all the time and do the stuff. But it was trying to reserve or to restrict us. He says, I don't want you to go that place. So the role of the law was to constrict us, but not just to constrict us. It says in verse 24, the law also was our guardian until Jesus came that, way, that we might be justified by faith. Now, this means tutor. Not like tutor, they're going to just help you with your math one, for an hour a week. In Roman culture, wealthy families had slaves whose full-time job was to take care of their kids. And what I mean by that is they would actually teach them they would instruct them, but they'd also discipline them. If you read the historians of the time, these guardians or tutors used to walk with us with a stick. We would say in our time, a spoon. And they kept the kids in line, educationally and other ways. They were strict, they tended to be unkind, and their job was to get the job done. And Paul says the law is like a strict tutor and a guard constraining you. But then, this happens. Jesus comes. He says, now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. See, Jesus is the turning point of all of history. Jesus changes everything. And he says, now faith has come. And I just got to work this out again. Faith isn't belief. You're like, what? Let me work this out. I said this last week. Let me say it again. I believe Singapore exists. I don't have to go to Singapore to know it is true. I don't have to experience it. I'd like to go, by the way. Anyone willing, I'm great. But I don't have to go. So when we say in our culture, faith or belief, people go, yeah, yeah, I believe in Jesus. Or yeah, he was a nice guy. Or yeah, he lived 2,000 years ago. Or he was, no, 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 no. That's not what it means. Faith means informed trust, not just raw data belief. So what he says is, those who are genuine followers of Jesus have really trusted in Jesus, his work alone, his person alone, his claims alone, his promises alone. We bring nothing to the table. That's when you get saved. 
So in Jesus Christ, he says in verse 26, we are all children of God through faith. Now the implication of this verse is incredibly beautiful and profoundly offensive, especially to Canadians. And here's why. Not all humans are children of God. Oh, all human beings are made in the image of God. All human beings have more value probably than anything else in creation. All human beings are to be respected and loved. But the only way you become a child of God is not that you're born a human, but actually that you encounter God. And how do you encounter a God? How do you come to faith? How do you gain the blessings of the nations? Well, Paul and the whole Christian faith is exclusively clear. Only through Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is the only one that's dealt with all of our stuff. He's the only one that obeyed the law perfectly. He's the only one who lived a perfect life. He's the only one who's come back from the other side. No other religious leader, philosopher, historian, educator, scientist has come back from the grave. Only one's come back from the dead. His name is Jesus Christ. He's the only one who can deal with everything we're facing. He's building a bridge back to what we walked away from in Eden. So in Jesus Christ, you are all children of God through faith. And then here's the verse. For all of you were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. We talked about this last week. When do you get baptized in Christ? Right when you say yes to Jesus, the Bible says his spirit comes into you to live in you. It's called baptism of the spirit. That's what this is referring to. When you say yes to Jesus in faith, his spirit moves into you. And then the second image that is given, which is so profound, is this. And we've been clothed in Jesus. Here's how you can put it. Jesus is our new clothing. Think about clothing. You're all wearing clothing today? Good, great, excellent. Good, we don't have to call the cops. All right, so think about clothing that you're wearing right now. Think about clothing your whole life. It has the power to communicate what you can afford, what you cannot afford, what you believe, or what you stand for. Hear phrases like this all the time, right? Like you're so in fashion, you're so out of fashion, you're so on trend, you're so off trend in skinny jeans and bell bottoms and tie or no tie, shoulder pads or no shoulder pads. Let's stick with that, by the way. On and on it goes. Clothing divides us, low income, high income, age, style, ethnic group, subculture. And by the way, every generation has the subcultures designated by clothing, right? Right now it's Visco girls. If you don't know what I'm talking about, I have one. Then there are valley girls. There's mods. Remember this? Preps, jocks, emos, goths, scene kids, hipsters, hype beasts, greasers, glam rock, b-boy, k-pop rockers, skaters, trekkies, hippies, and grunge. What binds those groups together? It's what they think and what they what? Wear. What's the uniform? If I see someone wearing a McDonald's uniform, I go, they work at McDonald's. Oh, oh, if I go in an airport and see someone wearing an Air Canada outfit, I know they work for Air Canada. Here is the most amazing thing that needs to be brought back in the church. This is rarely taught on. Jesus now is our new clothing that binds us together in our diversity. Like, you got to understand how powerful this is. Jesus is our uniform. Jesus is what we all wear together, despite all of our diversity. But not only that, it's even more profound than that, because it's not just clothing, it's covering. When Adam and Eve sinned, what's the very first thing they did? Anyone? What did they do? They hid. They hid. They ran and they hid. And then it says in Genesis chapter 3, verse 7, that when they knew they were naked and they had sinned, they sowed fig leaves on themselves to cover them. 
And it says that God knew this would not be enough. And if you keep reading, it says that God came to them, verse 21, and made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, Eve, and clothed them. So this is the thing we all got to catch. Ready? God came into the cover-up, and God came into our hiding, and God, though he has been affronted and assaulted and attacked and removed and warred against, God, because he's love, walks to his hiding children, takes off the fig leaves that he, they have put on themselves, and he puts on a better covering, garments of skin, animal death, blood would have to be spilled, a foreshadow that would happen through sacrifice, but the greatest foreshadow because Jesus would be sent by the Father and Jesus would become our better covering and God the Father would come to the human race and take off religion and science and technology and philosophy and everything else we're trying to hide our nakedness with and said, no, no, you don't understand. Law keeping's not gonna do this for you. Discovery's not gonna do this for you. Jesus is gonna do this for you because he's the ultimate covering, right? That's the power of the Christian message. So Paul says, this is the Christian faith. God has love and has always been love. And God does all the work. All we must do, though we've walked away, is trust and believe in the promise. Abraham has showed us that faith is before the law. The law shows us our sin and needs and moves us to have a savior. God takes off our coverings, religious, spiritual, and secular, and replaces them with the better covering, which is Jesus. And you don't earn the covering, you don't seduce the covering, you don't buy the covering, you just say yes to the covering. And he says 2,000 years ago, you Galatians, you don't listen to these false teachers. You don't need to become more Jewish. You've already accepted Jesus. You're already a son and daughter of the living God of heaven and earth. And then he says, you really want to know the implications of this? Then let me bring this home. I said this before, let me do it again. Almost every Orthodox Jewish man 2,000 years ago woke up in his devotions and said this prayer, blessed are you, O king of the universe, who has not made me a non-Jew, a slave, or a woman. Paul says this, oh, you want to see the implications? And I'm a world-class thinking Jew says, here's the implications of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 28, there is neither Jew, non-Jew, slave, free, male, female. You are all one in Jesus Christ. This is not saying, by the way, the distinctions go away. This is not an argument, by the way, for gender fluidity or an argument that your ethnic history does not exist. No, no, understand, this is a salvation statement. This is not declared, by the way, in family, politic, market, or business. This is to the church. Jews need to remain being Jews. Greeks need to remain being Greeks. If you're Jamaican, be Jamaican. If you're German, all good. If you're Japanese, keep going. But our unity in the church is in someone beyond all of our uniquenesses. And we gotta understand, that person is Jesus. As one said, the heart, at the heart of racism is the religious assertion that God made a creative mistake when he brought some people into being. Oh, no, he did not. Don't miss the power of this. What happens in the Christian movement is this, that we all realize we're all in trouble and we all need a savior and our unity is found in one who's beyond us. And this unity in Jesus is eternal. The promise of the Christian faith is one thing. When I do funerals, this is the one thing I declare. Jesus rose from the dead and this person who is in the ground who will rot has risen from the, will rise from the dead because they've believed in Jesus. The physical resurrection is the only hope we have. But what gender you were born with in this life, you were eternally that gender. The ethnic background you come from, you are that forever. I am a white boy forever and ever, amen? It's just who I am. 
And here's what we've got to understand. God doesn't just care for your soul. We're not Buddhists. We're not Gnostics. God cares for all of you. God cares for Jonathan David Thompson, who was born a boy, who actually is a man, who's a father, who's a white guy. All of me is going to be resurrected. And he says the distinctives don't go away, but the unity is in Jesus, and they are eternal. He says, so whether you're or Greek or you're Jew or slave or free, this begins to change how we deal with economics and how we love each other. Oh, oh, it doesn't change everything overnight. You still have a boss, but how you treat your boss, or if you're a boss, how you treat your employee, if you're a Christian, oh, it changes. Here's what Paul wrote years later in Ephesians 6. Slaves, you obey your earthly masters with respect and fear, with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Jesus. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving Jesus, not people, because you know as a slave that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether slave or free. Oh, 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 and masters, whoa. Treat your slaves the same way. Oh, don't threaten them. They're not your property anymore. You don't mistreat them. No, no, since you know that he was both their master and yours in heaven, there is no favoritism with him. God created male and female. Gender is God's idea. We're made in the image of God. And the point is this, whether you're slave, free, Jew, Greek, male or female, we all have access to God the Father through Jesus, which is the ultimate access. So if you belong to Christ, then you're Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Some of you, many of you who join us week in and week out here, you're not Christians. We're so glad you're here. You're seekers, you're skeptics, you're trying to understand, you come from another faith, you're neutral, you're dragged here by someone. Some of you here are, you have the title Christian, you're ethnically Christian, but you have not embraced Jesus. Do you want eternal life? No, no, like for real. Do you want the forgiveness of sin, no matter how old you are? Do you want to know that when you die, resurrection is true? Do you want to actually know what purpose is in this life? Then have the courage to do something you will never hear anywhere else. Go home on your iPhone or get an old Bible and pull out the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 and read them and see how much trouble you are in. When I walk into my bathroom and I look at the scale and I decide I'm not going on the scale, that does not change my weight. (laughs) Right? Oh, I'm fine. Yeah, I'm fine. No, you're not. If I say I'm not going to the doctor because I just don't want to know if something could be wrong, that doesn't change if something is wrong because I, what, avoid it. You want eternal life? Don't be spiritual. You want eternal life? Don't read Oprah. You want eternal life? Don't buy another self-help book. Look at the Ten Commandments. See how separated you are from the love of God and then see how God still loves you anyways and come through Jesus. That's the way you get saved. Nothing more, nothing less. This is why Paul, remember, who murdered Christians, Paul, who trusted his whole life in religiosity, wrote these words in Galatians 2.16, for we know that a person is not what? Justified, legally made right with God by the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. I preached this last week. Let me do it again. You will never be made right through religion. Whether you pray at the Wailing Wall or you, you, you're mindful trying to reach nirvana or you've traveled to Mecca or you go to confession every week or go to church, if you think that God has the scale upstairs, you are already lost. There is no scale. The gap is too big. 
Spirituality will never save you. Being mindful will not save you. Exercise is not gonna save you. Traveling the world is not gonna save you. Self-discovery is not gonna save you. The exploring of the universe, though amazing, will not save you. Fate does not save you. Money does not save you. A good job does not do it. Education, discovery, being kind, being nice, giving to the United Way, being charitable, public service, political power, the right family. No, no, it's never performance. It's always promise. It's always promise. And to get the $10 million, you just need to go visit Uncle Jack. You need to say, I want the promise. And when some of you right now, when I just said this, it's too good to be true. It is too good to be true, but it's still true. It's still true. Now for us, many of us are genuine followers of Jesus in this community. Why does this passage matter, not just eternally, in the now? Not just for our church, but the churches in the GTA, the most multicultural city on earth. Let me remind all of us of something here. As followers of Jesus Christ, our unity is in our baptism through the Spirit, and our clothing is Jesus. A man named Adrian uh, P.I. or Pi just wrote a book called The Minority Experience. He said, it's easy to become discouraged and weary when we see patterns of history that just keep repeating. No matter how much we learn or educate ourselves or others, it just keeps happening. When we're stuck in the middle of these polarizing debates like race, it's hard to see an end in the sight of all these circles. However, the narrative of the Bible is not circular and it is not directionless. Oh, the Bible has a beginning. The Bible has a middle. Oh, and let me preach, the Bible has what? An end. And the message of God is that history is not random, but purposeful. And God is weaving the events of this world together like a master, master storyteller. There is movement and change we can see. And then the author says, speaking to a U.S. audience, the increasing demographics of ethnic minorities in the U.S. is an undeniable reality that is reshaping our landscape and also changing even what leadership of the country will look like. And then as a Christian pastor, he says, this is an exciting reality that we can and must steward. The question is, who will navigate these emotional and communal realities? And he says, look, we as Christians know what the end looks like. No one else does. Revelation 7, 9. Every nation, every tribe, every people, every language standing before God's throne and before Jesus the Lamb. Now watch this. These people, he writes, are not assimilated into the melting pot of heaven. They, restain, they, they contain and retain their distinctiveness and the beauty of their culture forever. Will we see this path as burdened or gift? We cannot see or control the larger narrative of history, but we can control what each one of us does today. We can let our pain build compassion, our power build advocacy, and our past build wisdom. And then let me add to this, but how? How can we do that? And the answer is this, because Jesus is our clothing, everyone. Jesus really is our clothing. In the ever-growing diversity, rural, urban, and suburban, male and female, and the mass cultures that are now coming to this church, not just to our city, but to this church, we have the great, profound privilege to show the world that multiculturalism can really work, but it's not going to happen through politics. Multiculturalism is not going to happen through education. I'm sorry, it's not. 
How do I know this? 10,000 years of recorded history. It's not going down. How do I know what will happen? I know this. Jesus is the one that can bring enemies and make them friends. Jesus is the one that can teach us to love each other because he is our mutual clothing. No matter what your age is today or your race is today or your gender is today, we have the profound moment to show the GTA that actually true multiculturalism, true unity in diversity does not happen because we're all nice Canadians. It happens in the Lord Jesus Christ who forgives sins and brings us together. And the more as a church we demonstrate this, the more attractive the gospel will become because people will say, how do you keep hanging out with that person that on social media I'm taught to hate? Oh, because they're my brother in Jesus. How do you hang out with a 75-year-old and you're a 16-year-old and you've got the genes that are now up to here? What's going on? Jesus brings us together. How do black people and white people and Asians and Hispanics live together even though we don't look the same or smell the same or think the same or eat the same? It doesn't matter. Our distinctiveness are real, but Jesus... Jesus is the one that brings us together. That's what brings us together. And so I want to say this is a critical moment and we need to ask the Spirit of God to continue to confront racism in us and ageism in us and all the other stuff so we remember evangelism is connected to our gospel witness and our gospel witness is connected directly to our unity. So could you stand and let us ask the Jesus of this scripture to keep producing in us something that is beyond politics, but is supernatural and heaven-given. So number one, thank you, God, for the law. Anyone said thank you for the law? Just say thank you, Lord, for the law. Thank you, Lord, for showing us our lostness. Thank you for showing us the judgment of God and the, and, and the sin we're all in. And thank you for giving us Jesus. Thank you that we don't have to earn it or, or buy it or seduce it. Thank you that Jesus has taken the penalty. Thank you that Jesus is Lord and he has covered our sin. Thank you. And now, Lord, we're asking, because we're praying for 10,000 people in this church, but we're praying for the revival of all the church in Canada. And we're asking, Holy Spirit, you would come and produce a supernatural unity that makes no sense other than Jesus himself. Make enemies friends. Make family members lovers of Jesus. Would you continue to remind us that though we are Jew and Greek, slave and free, male and female, our oneness is in Jesus. Continue to defend the unity of this church. All glory to be to God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Let's sing now to our Lord together. Are you ready to do that? Let's, let's sing to him now.